Good evening and welcome to the first weekly broadcast of Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is an independent, eclectic, nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. In tonight's program, Chicano performance trio Culture Clash joins Oscar Garza, editor-in-chief of Tu Ciudad magazine, to talk about their inspirations, their newest work, and their perspectives on art, politics, and Hollywood. I have known these uh, gentlemen for uh, almost longer than I care to say, but I've always been, uh, from the very beginning, from the first time that I saw them perform, which I believe was at around 1987 or 1988 in San Antonio, uh, just completely blown away and impressed and, uh, and proud of what they do. Uh, I suspect that most of you here are fans and know their history, so I won't give you the blow-by-blow blow other than uh, their work goes back to about 1988, uh, their theatrical work, which uh, started what I believe the mission and uh, went on from there to several shows, including A Bowl of Beings, uh, and, and the list goes on and on. They most recently have put together a show called uh, Culture Clash in America, which is sort of a compilation of sh shows that they've been doing in various cities around the country, including Los Angeles and Miami and San Francisco. I should, it would be remiss for me to not mention Chavez Ravine, the show that they did about Los Angeles and the Chavez Ravine neighborhood at the Mark Taper Forum. This year, they are doing something I don't believe they've ever done before. They are premiering two major works in the same year, and I'm anxious to hear how they're going to pull this off. The first one is uh, called Zorro in Hell. Uh, it'll be premiering at the Berkeley Repertory Theater, uh, I believe sometime in the spring. And then they're doing another Los Angeles show that will premiere here, I believe in August or September at the Mark Taper Forum uh, called Water and Power. It's uh, something very different for them that you'll hear about this evening as well. Uh, you know, Culture Clash, the guys, they are commonly referred to as the preeminent Latino satirists in the American theater. But I've been thinking about that, and you know, there's nobody else who's doing what they're doing in the American theater. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, they're the preeminent satirists in the American theater, period. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Richard Montoya, Rick Salinas, and Herbert Sequenza, Culture Clash. We're uh, in a little bit going to be hearing excerpts from their new shows that I mentioned uh, in the introduction, but uh, I wanted to start with a couple of questions. I was trying to think of the things that I don't know about you, mm -hmm. uh, because I know entirely too much about you. <laughs> uh, but you two grew up in the Bay Area, San Francisco particularly. You grew up in Sacramento. <laughs> yeah. But how, when and how did you meet? Because that's one story I don't know. Did you make your way to the Bay Area at some point, Richard? Yeah, I was uh, already active in Teatro Campesino, and I had a little theater group in Sacramento, and in and out of the, uh, the Cal State and um, junior college system without ever having to attend, which to great chagrin of both my parents who are educators, but <laughs> I did, never bothered to be enrolled. And um, at the same college, my dad was teaching at Sac State, oh. and I think I remember you from your Sacramento days in Sacramento. Well, that's something they don't need to know about you. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I made my way to San Juan Bautista to work uh, with Luis Valdez, and then uh, got in a show with Teatro Campesino in San Francisco, which Rick and Herb were boycotting at the time, because <laughs> they were very active and, and very political. Um, Chicano Latino Teatro at the time was coming at its tail end. I mean, there, there were 70 teatros in the Southwest alone. They were involved in two of the more political, very gay, very queer teatros in, <laughs> in San Francisco. I mean, they were, they were very, very progressive for the time. I, uh, Herb, uh, I think they had to kiss each other at one point, didn't you? Now that you outed you're, you're, me, yes. Do you remember the first... <laughs> we're outing Culture Clash tonight. So, so we met... Uh, anyway, we knew of each other, never met until Rene Yanez, who is a curator at Galeria de la Raza, right there on 24th and Bryant in the Mission District, Rene said, hey, wait a minute, this guy's funny, this, this guy's funny. Uh, Jose Antonio Burciaga, rest in peace, from Stanford, was a humorist, and uh, Monica Palacios and Marco Gomez were uh, two comedians very active in the cabaret um, uh, San Francisco circuit already, and, and Rene really is responsible for bringing us all together um, May 5th, 1984, in a small little... Uh, gallery um, in San Francisco, and, and I, I often think back to that gallery because I think a lot of those performance art tools, mm -hmm. uh, if you think to 84, uh, comedy clubs and performance art were, were really pretty big. What was happening in San Francisco rivaled what was really happening in New York in terms of performance art, and, and we, to this day, 
the work is uh, performance-driven, meaning character-driven. We don't do traditional plays. A lot of what we learned in that first weekend at Galleria, and, and you know, the board of directors at the Galleria was uh, scandalized, and, you know, the, they were calling us clowns of the movimiento, and people were still taking their Chicano Teatro very seriously mm -hmm. when we came on the scene. And uh, I think it's safe to say we really shook things up uh, almost 22 years ago in that Cinco de Mayo in 84, and... and Renee was right somehow because this wasn't really meant to go on this long. It just uh, happens to be that we're we're in our 22nd year. It was really fresh. I mean, what we did that night was very magical, and I think I speak for them that we knew that this is what we were going to do for the rest of our lives because it was just so different, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, because we're all doing, you know, traditional teatro, right? Yeah. We talked about social ills of the campesino and whatnot, but we were talking about urban bilingual, you know, middle-class Chicanos who've gone to college and have, you know, another kind of schizophrenia, another kind of comedy. And so we were talking about, we were talking about our lives, you know, our lives. And I think millions of people were relating to what we were saying, and we were the only ones doing it. Rick, what's your, uh, I, what's your fondest memory? My fondest days? memory. <laughs> well, I think that when we first met each other, you know, we were kind of just trying to do what we um, were watching ourselves on television and what we grew up at home. There's all these influence in Spanish-only television, but at the same time, I'd watch great shows like Gilligan's Island and <laughs> Dick Van Dyke, but Saturday Night Live was, was really strong, and, and then the comedy of Lenny Bruce, uh, George Carlin, and Cheech and Chong. Uh, Paul Rodriguez was just starting out at around the same time, but we chose the whole other route. We, we just wanted to do comedy that said something from the beginning. And I think that's what kind of kept us going because we just didn't do comedy for comedy's sake. I mean, sometimes we did a, a pratfall and we loved doing just comedy for comedy's sake, but we always had a message. We always had to do and say something that left people thinking about the humor. And, and, and it was satire. And, and the earliest comedy was pretty um, kind of basic and broad. <laughs> you know, It was just to get the quick laugh. But as we became better writers, now our satire is a lot sharper. But for a while, we were a comedy group. I think for yep. the first 10 years, we were considered a comedy group. But I think the, the title changed as we started writing, you know, plays. One of the other things I wanted to ask all of you was, what were your influences growing up? Uh, you know, before you even knew that this was going to be sort of your career. I, I think Herb uh, mentioned there was a, an outgrowth and a, and a growing pain there that was kind of um, ugly at the time. And we were going from uh, rural... Teatro Campesino to this idea of the whole idea of being urban Latinos. The performance group Bosco was already a few years ahead of us in terms of the genius of Harry Gamboa. They're from L.A. and, and I was trying to emulate and wear lots of black clothing and um, <laughs> watch Luis Buñuel at an early age. I didn't understand, <laughs> but uh, you know. Is that why you look like Morrissey now? Or <laughs> you want, if you want to hug me, you can. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, Gronk and that, which at the time was really going head-to-head -head, um, aesthetically with uh, my uncle Malakias Montoya and the Royal Chicano Air Force and these old vatos from up north. Would, they would meet in Santa Cruz and they would, you know, I remember just being a kid. Those are my influences, you know. And not that we're disparaging the important place Teatro Campesino has, but we, we as a kid, watching teatro at its height, I think that seared um, into my head more so than the television and, and the other influences. And then being invited into the little workspace of Teatro Campesino in Fresno and watching Luis, Danny, and Socorro uh, perform one of my dad's poems, El uh, Louis, for example, right front, center as a child watching. You know, I haven't seen anything yet capture that that sort of brilliance, and, and it, it frustrates me, but I think that Chavez Ravine for us got as close to that as we could. Yeah. No, I echo the same thing when I saw Teatro Campesino in my teens. I wanted to do teatro, you know, also Teatro de la Gente, which was from San Jose. But I think as a seven-year-old, I was kind of like a, a British file. I, I loved, uh, yeah, I loved like Monty Python, you know, although I didn't know what was going on, and, and, and I still don't, you know. And, you know, I grew up with the Beatles, you know, and the Beatles, although they were a musical group, they were really funny when they did their, you know, their show, and yeah. Peter Sellers, you know, the Pink Panther, all that stuff. You know, you grow up with that, and then and then you're growing up with Cantinflas and Tintan and all that. So you you know, we're it's bicultural, man. You it's you come from a family of artists, but do either of you have performers in your family? No, none. None. Um, I was the first um, kid to graduate college in my family, so I, I had a nine to five job when Culture Clash started. I worked for NBC as a producer for uh, youth programs, and I 
literally quit my job and ran away to join the circus, which was Culture <laughs> Clash. <you know? laughs> and, you know, it took my dad at least a good, good thing we're going on our 22nd year because it took him 15 years to accept it. <laughs> my, mom, my mom's mom, Rosa, she was a declamadora. This is an old school where, where these, you know, where you had to learn, you know, entire poems, you know, and los declamabas, you know, you would yeah. recite them. So she did that in El Salvador. And uh, there's musical strains in my family. My brother was a bass player for an old group called Mink Deville. I don't know if you remember. You're showing your age, if you know. Um, <laughs> um, let's fast forward now and talk about what you're doing now, what you're about to embark on. We're going to hear a little bit of Zorro, but first tell us about the genesis of this show and why it's happening now. Um, the Berkeley Repertory Theater, we've been performing up there uh, a few years now doing um, some of our plays, and I think they were board members. They sit on the board of the Berkeley Rep, uh, uh, Sandy Curtis and her uh, brother, John Gertz, and their parents inherited or bought the rights to Zorro from uh, Johnston McCulley, who was a, a hack writer from the 1900s. In 1919, he wrote and uh, created Zorro, the Zorro that we all know of. Anglo guy from the Midwest, and you know, <laughs> really. So uh, they've been trying to get us to do something on Zorro for the longest time, and we kept saying no. I mean, I, finally, it just made sense to do something on Zorro because we were we were thinking that we could do something that's a little bit more deconstructive, where we could take uh, the story of Zorro and really just go like uh, Alice in Wonderland, a looking glass, and 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 seeing the different sides of what Zorro really means uh, in terms of being in California, being Spanish, uh, being during the time of the Californios, uh, all the history that uh, was about the missions and, and so forth in California. It was a California history play um, creation. So we took a shot at it, and it's a real, real uh, kind of zany, crazy, and uh, political examination of the status of California and, and what it was then and where it's going today. But uh, we're having a lot of fun with it because uh, it's kind of a throwback to our earlier work. And this is premiering when? It's going to be at the Berkeley Repertory Theater uh, March through April, and then we're going to do it at La Jolla Playhouse uh, September and October. I think part of the uh, reluctance was that you know we weren't in the mood for uh, um, zany um, and, and you know a romp. Uh, as Rick said, we were interested in deconstructing the, the Latin myths and heroes. And uh, uh, The Mark of Zorro was on HBO last night at 4 in the morning as I was writing our other play. And, <laughs> and I could see how uh, – it's, it's, it's uncanny. It's about a foreign-born governor, you know, mm, um, <laughs> uh, taking gold. Who's going to be the next governor? And, and Mexicans and Indians and a multicultural um, California – and um, the Zorro that um, that we're taking on sort of takes the journey of the writer who's really kind of rejecting uh, the notion of the Latin myth and and um, until he gets caught up in um, uh, meeting this 200-year-old lady, an Anglo lady, who has really been uh, the keeper of the Zorro myth and legend, and it's a complete uh, rejection at the outset of all that and the writer's very fiery and very Chicano and very defensive and you know Zorro was 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 made up in a myth and um, he gets caught up in a kind of a psychedelic way there's uh, peyote uh, factors in Oscar <laughs> and and that wasn't uh, me. <laughs> it, 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 it it does feel like one of our earlier pieces. Now, so do tribunals, and so does the notion of detainees and deportees. And, you know, the great August Wilson, rest in peace, um, gave himself permission to write in these cycles, you know. And uh, it was a tremendous thing, a 9-10 play cycle on the African-American experience. And we have found that at a time when Hispanic playwrights and Hispanic Hollywood are trying to distance themselves, you know, like this is a universal story. It, it has nothing to do. We just, we're just characters that happen to be Latino. Yeah. We kind of have been going the other way with that. This Latino, uh, there is a worldview, but it, it informs every sort of decision. So, so what happens at the end of the day is Zorro ends up being a, a part two of what's going to be um, a three-play cycle, starting with Chavez Ravine, and then Zorro will look at the early part of the century, and then Water and Power is, right. later is now. But um, as the writer embarks on, on the California Camino Real Inn, where he's supposed to stay and do research, mm -hmm. uh, he meets the very first Chicano of all time, Don Ringo. We thought, uh, <laughs> we thought Edward James Olmos was the first Chicano, but no, that's... 
This one belonged yeah. to Don Ringo. But um, it's a kind of a psychedelic, and all the writers throughout history have stayed at this inn, and the innkeeper has had uh, sexual tryst with all these writers. She has slept with Neruda and, and, and had a threesome with Lewis and Clark, and it's like... <laughs> And I finally, like, leave her after I'm arguing with her. Like, you can't call Macaulay Johnson and Zorro literature, you know, James Fenimore Cooper. Now, that's literature, and we go back and forth. And the first Chicano was like, hey, man, you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, well, you must be an apologist. And <laughs> Anyway, so up in my room, I close the door, and I'm trying to get in, in the mood. I'm trying to get in, do some research. Um, I'm trying to come up with titles for Zorro. You know, I've got to write this play. I'm trying to come up with... Uh, you know, plays, E tu Zorro Tambien, and, uh... <laughs> Zorro Reloaded, right? Zorro Reloaded, and, uh, Brokeback Zorro, and, uh, uh, all these things, and I'm, I'm getting all, uh, weird, and then a bear cloth, uh, hands me some peyote, and I take some peyote, and then before I know it, there's a statue, uh, behind me that starts, uh, that starts talking to a, me. A sleepy Mexican... Statue. Senor, you should not touch yourself. <laughs> I wasn't going to touch myself. Wait, wait a minute. You're, you're a statue and you're talking. My name is Pancho Jr. I'm the sleepy Mexican in the Zorro movies. You know, I'm the guy with the big sombrero next to the cactus or against the church door. <laughs> that is me. You're a Hollywood actor. Oh, yes, sir. I have a sack card. Mira nomás. <laughs> I come from a long line of unionized sleepy Mexicans. <laughs> My father, Pancho Sr., was the first sleepy Mexican in the original silent movies with Douglas Furbank. <laughs> I worked with my papa in the Tyrone Power movies. Remember when El Zorro rides gallantly into town, kicking up dust in our faces, and then marks the wanted poster with a Z? Well, I was the little sleepy Mexican next to my papa. My papa now is retired now, and he gave me his famous sombrero. Mm. See, the Smithsonian called me saying they wanted the sombrero for their museum. I said, no way, Jose, no. <laughs> no, the, this, this sombrero stays with the family in El Sereno. No, 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 no. <laughs> gracias, pero no gracias, ¿verdad? My little son, he will be in the new Antonio Banderas movie. Oh, see? You see, there will always be work for sleepy Mexicans because there will always be Zorro movies. So you see, senor, for my familia and me, Zorro leaves. Wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, you're a sad Mexican stereotype who feeds on the insatiable media machine, and I have no idea why I'm even having a conversation with you. You're a f***ing statue. Senor, you are the one who is sad, for you merely see a sleepy Mexican, but I sleep with one eye open, <laughs> ever vigilant, always alert for the moment when the sleepy giant will rise up and take back her land. And how do you propose to do that, sleepy Mexican? With my switchblade. <laughs> I will disembowel the dominant culture, my resistance thus reversing El Manifest Destiny. Are you the new Mecha president? <laughs> no, one day, one day, California will once again become Mexico. It already is, Pancho. Have you been to the El Monte swap meet lately? <laughs> Oh, you have jokes, verdad? You think you're very funny. Ha, 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 ha. Remind me to laugh. Mira, amigo, we all must come to terms with our dual identities mm. or not. It's your choice, senor. Mm -hmm. You thought I was a sleepy Mexican, but I really am a sleepy giant. Mm. ¿Cómo te llamas? Um, it's about 10 o'clock. <laughs> uh, no sabe español, el pocho. Yo sabo poquito. Pues check this out. Hmm. And then we flicker into a movie. And what, what we've done throughout the movie, good job, Herbie, good job. Luna, yeah. aplauso, por favor. Yeah. Um, what happens is throughout the play, these movies come to life, and we bring back uh, Don Diego de la Vega, and we, we stage. Uh, Rick's going to do a silent Fairbanks version, and then we do the classic 30s and 40s version with the guy fresh from fencing class in Madrid, and he's more concerned with Toreador outfits than fighting the sleepy savages in Odia. And, and we're really mocking those mid-Atlantic accents of those movies. It's like, it's 
you know, Zorro in Southern California, and they're talking about a French cuff must flutter in the wind like that of a sparrow or a swallow as it returns to the mission in Capistrano. <laughs> talk, talk a little bit about your creative process and your writing process. Do you guys all sit in a room at the same time? Do you work by email, you all live in <laughs> fairly close proximity to one another. It's brutal, uh, are you Are you actually uh, one of those groups who uh, you can't stand the sight of each other and <laughs> only, only see each other in public forums? <laughs> you know what? You described all of that. <laughs> yeah. It's all of that. It, every, every play takes on its own form, but, but this play in particular, Zorro, I think, is a really a throwback where we all, you know, we're all throwing down and, and any crazy idea works because it's open. It's an open forum, you know. We all bring in our strengths and our weaknesses, but we somehow managed to infuse it into that computer and into those pages. And, and the hardest part, I think, is once you do that first draft is the second, third draft. Our plays evolve. I mean, a play that you might have seen in one place, it'll change dramatically in the other uh, location where we perform it. I think uh, they're, they're like having babies. It's where you're up at night in the middle of the night or you're there and, you know, I left today. I'm on page 140 of a 185-page first draft that I'm trying to get down for a reading this weekend for actors and the director and the dramaturg. And it's, it's just not easy work. I think anyone that writes knows that, yeah, when it gets on its feet, great, everything changes. But, you know, the hours and hours and hours. Because writers are kind of in two camps. One is when the muse hits me, and I might go off to the pyramids, or I might get in a room and uh, smoke a doobie, and, hey, guys, here's an idea. I think those days for Culture Clash are, you know, maybe we'll find a piece where we will do that. But uh, the Oliver Stone approach is ass plus chair equals pages. And, and I think there is a discipline... <laughs> There is a discipline to that that has been elusive for us, but I'm finally getting it now in my mid-40s, and it's like it's painful but uh, rewarding so that when we come in the rehearsal hall, we're not at the writer's table. We're in the rehearsals hall. What's helping us tremendously is great directors and great dramaturgs and having some infrastructure so it's not just the culture clash butcher shop. It's, it's we're good enough and we've been around long enough that we ought to have some help and some infrastructure so that, so that we kind of approach this um, either collectively like Zora was or like when I bring something to the table, we've got professionals helping us uh, sift through it. I think that one thing that helps the group is that we do agree with a lot of things. Like we have uh, liked minds. I mean, we are definitely these political animals, and we we know what humor is. We we laugh. You know, we're very similar. I think that's why we've been together for so long because we are like brothers in a sense. We 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 do um, group together and laugh and and always commenting even when we're off stage in in life. So this is another bit from... This uh, part from Zorro. Yeah, the, um, in Zorro, what you guys have to understand is, is uh, oh, yeah. the, the stage production. And this is what I meant by working with, with really excellent teams of designers and directors and, and, and dramaturgs is that the production in Berkeley and La Jolla is going to just be fantastic. It's, the curtain will open and you will see you know, a 40-foot illuminated California Bear Republic flag the bear from that flag gets off the flag. Mm -hmm. Don't give too much away. And later, that bear becomes my therapist <laughs> named Kyle. He's a kind of a Jungian therapist guy. And we're, I'm in my room, and after the sleepy Mexican has come to life, I'm trying to get to work, and then this, this, I fall asleep after the movie, and I wake up, and I'm looking at this huge uh, grizzly bear that's um, in my room at the El Camino Real Inn, and he's talking away. Okay. I'm a bear. Zora Neale Hurston writes that in the African culture, the rabbit, the bear, the lion, the buzzard, the fox are all cultural heroes from the animal world, but they're tricksters, shapeshifters. Would you like a hit? <laughs> Robin Hood, another sort of nocturnal animal, another archetype, folk hero who stole from the rich and gave to the poor. Um, how long was I out? Uh, five days. I must have been knocked out after the movie. Oh, uh, the Zora movie? Um, so you are the house doctor? Um, you have some issues you'd like to discuss. I suggest we get started. So, am I in therapy? <laughs> okay, you can call me your therapist. Nice. Shall we begin? I like cats. Meow, 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 meow. You are meow. blocking painful emotion. La, 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 
Please don't avoid the work. Okay, okay, I'm worried. We I, all. I, I'm stuck. I, I'm. I'm I'm I, I'm stuck in this thing, and I've got a duffel bag full of rejection notices there and script notes from the George Lopez show. And to tell you the truth, <laughs> I can't figure out one from the other. I'm 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 at a crisis. I understand. I I'm understand. I'm at a crisis. Kyle the bear, therapist bear. It's okay. We all go through periods of creative lulls, peaks, mm. valleys. For example, my ideas are basically based off another bear ideas. Mm. At some point, I just have to embrace that. So nothing is authentic. Well, Nietzsche said that. No, 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 no. Nietzsche said God is dead. I know this for sure because I googled God. <laughs> uh, Nietzsche may not have meant that God is dead as in there is no God. He was likely saying that every man's idea is based on another man's idea. The Bible, the Talmud, Quran, angels in America. That's what I was trying to tell the old horny lady downstairs. Zorro's not real. He's a myth. But when do myths become real? Ah, you got me. When people believe in them. Were you a riddle in bear? Uh, no. I was actually a latchkey bear. Ah. See, the old lady believes, so for her, the hero is real. She draws her strength from that. You are one smart bear. So in your mind, I exist. Well, you are sitting there. Am I? Ah, an existential bear. Uh, would you scratch my back, please? I beg your pardon. My back needs scratching, so please scratch it. Oh. Yeah. Oh, right there. Oh. oh, I haven't been able to reach that spot in years. Oh, thank you. Oh, such a cute bear. Oh, such a smarty pants bear. Oh, okay, okay, that's enough, that's enough. Please, thank you. I would appreciate it if it, you did not infantize me. Please, do not fetishize me. Yet, my culture has been romanticized for centuries. See, Borges talked about the mysterious macho alpha male, the Latin lover, strung up by his balls by the ever-pursuing lawman. Mm. Zorro is simply a more palatable version of this. Ah, so you're an educated apologist. I have two degrees from Cal. Hmm. <laughs> Go Bears! Get up. I said on your feet. Take these swords. Oh. See the sword. Uh-huh. The face. Individuality and emotion. Uh, Kyle puts on a mask. The mask. Uh. Dual identities, yes. hidden truths. The mask is commonality. I'll need cliff notes on all of this, Kyle. Like the shtetls of Eastern Europe. The shtetls, the sons and daughters of Abraham. See, universal concerns for the whole. See, the Jews had it right all along. Mm. Self-sacrifice for the good of the entire village. Ah. My rabbi was talking about this way before Hillary Clinton. Jews always get it right. Why do you think little kids in Brooklyn would steal away for hours at the double feature matinees on Saturdays? Zorro spoke to us. He spoke to them. He was a hero behind the mask, no matter who concocted him. Did you have a bear mitzvah? I should kill you for that one. Ah, if you prescribe me some happy pills, I'll share them with you. <laughs> we'll just fade out. Fade out. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those inside the actor's studio questions. Yeah. Rick. Um, oh, no. Where did, <laughs> where did the voice for the, from the bear come from? <laughs> the bear. I don't know. It feels bear-like. It feels you know? very, yeah. yeah. It sounds, like, you know, it's sounds kinda very. Kinda it's it's going to be great with the costume, though, because it's going to be a real bear. And, it's and is the cast just the three of you for the show? We're going to have two really great actors, uh, Sharon Lockwood, who's like one of the best actresses up in the Bay Area, comes from the San Francisco Mime Troupe mm -hmm. and been touring around with a, a play called Nickel and Dime. And hopefully we'll get a guy from New York. It's John Bolton, who's worked with us before. So it's two other people and a musician. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we should go on and talk about Water and Power, which is going to premiere at the Taper next fall. Yeah. And uh, Richard, as you mentioned, you're the primary writer uh -huh. for the piece. Yep. Uh, what's the quick synopsis about this show and its origin and what you're trying to do? A um, couple of things, Oscar. One is I, th I personally have been uh, eager to kind of drive a stake into the heart of this notion of us as a comedy troupe. And I liked your intro a lot because I think Satiris is accurate in performance people, but we kind of been getting that dismissed thing, you know, comedy troupe, and it's kind of been backlashing us. And instead of being self-conscious about it, I think the best thing to do is just set about writing a play. Not, a, not I didn't set out to just, you know, write a drama or something dark. I just wanted to go the other way in terms of this honeymoon that we've been on, I, I for one, was uh, have been campaigning, and I was there first go-around in terms of our mayor uh, four years ago. I remember the way that Han um, ran that first campaign successfully defeating Antonio, and I remember that bitter taste. And one thing Antonio did say to us in a small group of artists is, keep spinning for me. I can't say the things you can. 
So we injected a lot of that into Chavez Ravine in terms of the birth of the progressive movement for Chicanos in this town and the east side, west side coalitions. And I kept reading over the summer so many Hispanic politicians that were on their way to federal penitentiaries. And this is not a piece about Antonio or of people that I think are going to do phenomenal. This happens to be about two brothers and the promises they made to their father, who was an old DWP man. Who named his sons. Who named his sons Water and Power. <laughs> and he exacts on them a promise that he wants them to keep. And of those promises is respecting and helping people with less than you have. And those promises were fortified through hunger strikes and colleges or marching with Cesar and and those kinds of things. And so this is very much about promises that two ambitious uh, brothers make and mostly keep until we find um, ourselves in a motel room on the particular night that the place sets place. And uh, Power, he is like a um, fast rising star at LAPD and has been in and through and survived Rampart. And he's a cop that really knows uh, where the bodies are buried and has been involved in a lot of things. Uh, Water is a state assemblyman who's got bigger ambitions and knows how to cut deals with the best of them. And then the third character um, ultimately ends up being the moral compass of the whole piece is a kind of a homeboy character in a wheelchair based off several people we met uh, through Father Boyle. Uh, this particular character, beautifully played by Rick, is called Norte Sur. That's his name. Uh, Norte Sur was actually shot some years ago by the power character, but they have become friends. And on this particular night, Norte Sur is the only guy that power can trust anymore in this big city of angels. And so his brother comes to the motel room not knowing what to expect. And uh, so the play goes, it's like a roller coaster ride. And for me, I keep maintaining that, yes, it's a little bit darker, it's hopefully a bit deeper, but the humor is definitely going to be there. I remember asking Gordon Davidson, the outgoing artistic director at the Taper, I said, Gordon, there's a lot of Jewish tales, of uh, cautionary tales. And I said, we just elected Antonio. Is it too early for a cautionary tale? And he said, it's never too early or too late. And I, I really took that to heart. I think this piece uh, is really going to examine that as we happen to be uh, still kind of in our honeymoon in terms of not just Antonio, but Fabian and Alex and Rocky and and, and so it, it's going to name names and, and look at things, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun amid all the darkness. We're each going to play one character from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And as you've seen in our other plays, we do at least a dozen characters each. So what we're going to see right now is, at first, it's just an introduction to each character. They're not intermingling yet. We see the character power. Uh, I play Gilbert. He plays Gabriel. We're Gibby and Gabby, the Garcia brothers, and we're stars of the east side. And when we see um, Gabe, he is addressing his fellow officers. He's sort of an expert in certain areas of the LAPD. Listen up, people. This is a murder book. Every PD and sheriff's department in the country has them. The murder book. Violent and deadly acts upon humans by other humans are well documented in this book. It is your job to keep every Angelino from ending up in this book. Trust me when I tell you, you don't want to end up in my murder book. No cop should ever, ever end up here. I am the keeper and the expert of this book. This book is full of monsters. I chase monsters. And if in the process of chasing monsters, I become a monster, then hopefully that makes me a better monster catcher. Chase them. Find them. Bring monsters to me. In the next 48 hours, we expect this book to grow. Your captain has asked me to brief you on recent prison gang activities as they may affect your divisions. Yesterday, Two high-ranking shot callers were paroled from Pelican Bay and Folsom State Prisons. Things may get very busy on the east side. I'm coordinating a multi-agency task force that has been closely monitoring the situation. Our intel unit is anticipating something will go down tonight or early mañana. Be extremely careful out there tonight. Officers Falconer and Johnson, you're patrolling the Ramona Gardens housing project. Report all suspicious activity directly to me. Nothing is too small. Nothing. 
If you see a new car on a familiar street, a store closed too early, no children in the playground, if the hairs on the back of your partner's neck are standing up, if flocks of wild parrots are circling over in the shape of a large M, call me. <laughs> Understood? Understood? Nobody gets their cherry popped on the east side tonight. Go. Be smart cops. The city of Angel beckons. Get back here in one piece and don't forget to sign up for the police Olympics. <laughs> Remember, blessed are the peacemakers. Get out of here. On another part of the stage, we see his brother, uh, the state assemblyman, uh, working his uh, Blackberry. And he's on the phone. <laughs> yeah, what do you mean you haven't read the bill? What do you mean what's in the bill? Have you read the f***ing bill? What do you mean it doesn't poll well? Now, you didn't care if it polled well when your UCLA hunger striking ass was on its way to jail, did you? When Kenny Hahn didn't care if it polled well when he moved mountains so that you and your machistas wouldn't go to jail now, did he? Yeah, yeah, that's the part of the Hahn family people tend to forget. That's right, Senator. No, because it's a good bill. It's cut right from Roybal cloth. Rest in peace. It's got coalition building all over it. Sololinsky would be proud because I've got the teachers. I've got the nurses. I've got the cops. Who said that? No, I I'm not pissed at Villaraigosa. I'm pissed that I'm not Villaraigosa. <laughs> the man walks on water. He's golden. He can take a private jet to the Roosevelt-Garfield game and people wouldn't give a shit. Nah, because they know what's important, and so do you, and so do I, Senator. Come on, co-author this thing with me, man, and we'll have green space on 22 miles of Valley River on the east side. It's going to be beautiful, man, open, clean, and as unlikely as a cornfield in Chinatown. Come on, Bob. <laughs> Come on, Bob. It's legacy time, Bob. No Century City PR firms, no posturing, just a good law for good people and less asthma for the Chicanitos on the east side, huh? Why should kids on the west side get to breathe better air? Simple question, right? I need your focus, Bob. I need a bulldog who convinced those powerful construction companies not to develop on that prime space, and only you can bend arms with that smile of yours while you're asking them to partner with us so they can pay for the whole goddamn thing. Hold on. Call waiting. Hold on. No, I'm not talking to the press. Don't worry. I'm not talking to anybody when we're in conference committee. No, no, no. I, I'm expecting a few Senate amendments, but we're getting close to the governor, and I can't let this thing get derailed or distracted by the slightest little thing, or we're dead in the Arroyo, and you know how it goes, man. No, 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 no. Bob, Bob, don't make me call Richard Alatori, man. Don't make me do that. You know what he's going to say to you, don't you? This is what it is, man. I'm Richard Alatori, man. No, no, no. I was mapping East L.A. when Antonio was boxing groceries for Joe Sanchez on 3rd and Bonnie Bray, man. I am Richard Alatori, man. Can I count on your support, Dan Bob? You, you do this for me, and I'll get you a foursome at the Crippled Children's East L.A. Golf Classic with that guy from Coke. Yeah, but you Hispanic stud, you. What's your handicap? That you're from Pacoima? Listen. <laughs> Machine politics, baby. It still works. No, 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 Bob, there's no need for name-calling, pal. I'm not a Hispanic from South Pass. I'm a Chicano from El Sereno, is it? That's several avenues over, pal. That's right. I'm a Costco Chicano cut from Clintonian cloth. That's right. That's what I'm talking about. Excellent. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. You're a rock star and a pottery barn Chicano. Thank you. Yes. That's how laws are made. Yes. Thunder. On another part of the stage, after these two openings, prologues kind of go away, then a homeboy wheels out center stage. There's this Mayan story, the myth of the hero twins. Yeah, when I first heard it, what they call the creation story, I was tripping, man. I had to smoke a big lanyard and stuff, you know, because like the Maya, they were trippy as gente, sacred, but loco to the bone. So here goes, the hero twins. See, the brothers, at first, they don't know their identities. They think they're just farm workers, right? Well, one day, the old lady tells the twins that they're really ball players. Not only that, eh, but they're descendants of handball players, and she goes and gets their father's uniform and handball equipment and stuff, real firme-looking outfits and everything. Well, sure enough, the twins are natural handball players, real good. The people go crazy for them. Every time they play a match, there's some noise, so much noise it disturbs and pisses off the lords of death. Now, the lords present the twins with many difficult challenges, but you know what? 
These twins are slicker than their ancestors, and they keep tricking the Lord, spitting them off even more. The Lord say, yes, we got to stop these punks, you know. So they make the twins prove themselves, but the twins kept tricking their way out of all kinds of tight jams, picking off the Lord's even more. On the final day, the twin vatos are taken to the dark house filled with bats. Now the twins, who are kind of psycho loco, they crawl into their blowgun, see, to escape the crazy bats. They just stay inside the blowgun, kicking back all cool till the manana. Just before the sun came up, it's all quiet and stuff, right? So the twins figured the lords are passed out and the coast is clear, you know. He peeks out of the blowgun for a quick second and a bat swoops down and tears his pinch of head off. So they use his head for the ball in the next handball game. The other twin doesn't get all freaked out. He calmly switches his brother's head for a squash carved out to look just like his carnal's head. When the squash smashes on the handball court, the lords get all pissed off. And this time they decide, enough is enough. Time to burn these twins, you know. The twins say, do what you got to do. Our only request is that you throw our ashes into the river and stuff. So after the lords barbecue the twins, they grind up their bones and ashes and throw them into the river as requested. These twins, man, what do you think happens next? You'll never guess in a million years. Well, after five days, the brothers resurrect with faces of catfishes. On the sixth day, El Sexto Dia, early in the morning, they get their human heads back and return to the land as magical performers. The lords learn of this and order a grand performance in court. For the big show, the twins cut off their own heads, but like that, they grow back. The lords go like, that's, that's cool, do that trick on me. So the twins oblige, and they cut off their heads, but they don't bring them back to life. Once again, the hero twins outsmart the lords of death. The lords of death, the L-O-D, are pissed off beyond measure. But the gente, the little people, are all happy because the twins brought hope to all humanity. Gosh darn. It's been raining 17 days and nights in L.A. Raining real hard. If you get your feet wet, make sure you put a little water on top of your head. Or else you get real sick. That's what my mom used to tell me anyways. I always wondered if the lords of death are still pissed off. If you don't believe me, just ask the twins. Good. I think Richard forgot to mention that the water and power are twins. twins. Yeah, they're twins. Mm -hmm. Richard, you just might have a little writer in you. Well, Very nice. well I, there's the Mayan myth. A lot of religions have these myth stories that Mayan one is... Um, these two twins, but there's yin and yang, and there's earth mother and grandfather, and you know you can you can find them, but there's just a lot out there right now, and I'm just trying to to really capture it and do really one one honest play. I don't, we don't know if it'll be our last one, or you know we're at that stage where you don't know how many more you got left yeah. in you. All these pieces are are a certain amount of uh, pain. I want to ask you guys just a couple other things really quickly. Let's. Switch gears, talk about Hollywood very briefly, because you guys over the years have had several dalliances and flirtations with Hollywood. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I would guess that none of them worked out the way you want them to. Uh, do you still see that in, in, your, in your future? Boy. <laughs> you know, we were having so much, so much fun until now. Uh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I mean, you know... People have told us, why aren't you on TV? Why aren't you in the movies? And, you know, and I have, to, I have to question that myself, you know, because I think we got what it takes, you know. But it's just, it's... Because uh... we're talented, intelligent, <laughs> yeah. and political? Yeah. I don't know. But... <laughs> you know, we're really, we're really happy with the plays that we're, we've done recently. Chavez Ravine, these coming up, I think, are keeping us really satisfied as artists. I mean, we have no problem there, but, man... Hollywood is like a, just this maze. For it's, a, it's a maze. It's a yeah. puzzle that we try to figure out. We're still we're still looking, you know. But we're, I think we're we're much more relaxed about it. I think we're gonna wait for the project that really really fits what we do, you know. And now with so many cables out there, with uh, satellite radio, there's more outlets now, yeah. and you're not so dependent on, on 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 let's say the networks that are very conservative and owned by multi corporations. So you know, briefly, yeah. brief, briefly. <laughs> When you say Hollywood, you know, it's not monolithic, you know. There are like-minded people actually out there with production companies and saying, wait a minute, w w why isn't there a Culture Clash movie? What do you guys want to do? We'll, in a sense, we'll build a coalition for you 
so that you guys can do that. What's been frustrating, Oscar, throughout the years over and over is a kind of a godfather system in terms of the Hispanic gatekeepers of Hollywood. And they have been as busy blocking access as they have creating access, which is what they're supposed to do. We don't have an NAACP. Hispanic Hollywood has been on this positive portrayal of images only idea for quite a while. And you've, you've really got to look at the Mexican filmmakers who are kicking ass. Okay, you take to Mamá Tambien and Amores Perros and compare those with Chasing Poppy and... Um, <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, those, those, that's the comparison. Well, because those guys are just telling stories. The Mexican filmmakers are just telling They're stories. They're just telling stories. And on our stage, we're telling stories. And we've had some very encouraging um, meetings. Um, there's been some great attempts, and we should applaud those attempts. But there is a problem with Hispanic Hollywood and a kind of uh, Hispanic portrayal... Uh, thing that they're caught up in. That's if you know where would August Wilson be with that sort of a mandate? You could take out half of Antonio Villaraigosa's story if you just wanted the positive part of his life. We're you know we're we're seeking and we're on a journey and we're looking for some some truth. Uh, if uh, Water and Power is your solo album, mm-hmm. say uh, it would be remiss for me to not bring up a show that uh, Herbert's been working on for the last few years. Uh, it hasn't been seen here a lot in Los Angeles, so you may not have seen it. But Herbert has taken on the Mexican comic legend Cantinflas, and in a, it's not quite a one-man show. I guess it's no, it's four people. Yeah, four people now. Uh, if you haven't seen it, the next time you have a chance, do everything you can to see it. If you've seen Culture Class perform over the years, you know what a great impressionist he is. And when I heard he was doing Cantinflas, I was really anxious. I grew up like you guys did, going to uh, similar circumstances. My mother taking me to the Alameda Theater in San Antonio, you know, to see Cantinflas movies as a kid. And uh, so when I heard he was doing this, I was really excited. My little last anecdote that I want you to tell about Cantinflas was uh, you did the show in Houston where it was seen by his widow. Yeah, one of his wives. One yeah. of his former wives. Second wife, yeah. Second wife. Which you had some little anxiety about, I'm oh, sure. Oh, yeah, because, I, you know, she slept with the guy, you know. Yeah. She knew. Um, and, she and knew him well. Yeah. So, but now what's the, what's the she kicker? She wanted to hate it. She says, you know, I really came, I really want, I wanted to come and hate it because no one can do him. And so she, she says, you did a great job. And she left, right? And she came back another week, uh, next week, this following with some more people. And she gave me his glasses. One of his, yeah, one of his. Not those. Those not aren't these, it. Not these. Oh, should have dropped him five times, <laughs> And those are the ones I wear in the show. In the show? These are Peter Sellers' glasses. (laughs) Uh, Let's take a couple of questions. Uh, My name is Felipe Agredano. I teach religion, and I follow religion. And I remember a play you did at uh, the Mark Taper Forum, uh, Carpet Clash. Mm. You did the story of of, uh, Mary and Joseph and little Jesus undocumented, Mm. and you also gave it the political spin. It was wonderful. Are you going to do any other religion into your plays, infuse it with political satire, etc.? Thanks for reminding me about that play, because we, we, that was like one of those, I think it was one of those masterpieces that was, wasn't quite finished, you know, but I, I love that, I love that imagery again. that it's, you just it's described. You know? It's funny, you should say, um, we did the, uh, Jose Antonio Burcega had this sketch called The Altar Boy, and it was these altar boys with the priests, and, and I went with uh, my wife's family, and, and she has an uncle who's a priest. And they were just like mortified when they saw this and they didn't talk and they all just like turned over and looked at what he was thinking and Father Mario was cracking up and loved it and he said, we are not above criticism. I think our plays have always had a strong spirituality in it. Those were more specific about that. But I think all our plays deal with uh, life and death and, and heaven and hell. Heaven and hell seems to be coming up a lot in our plays, even Zorro and hell. And hell equals California in this case. (laughs) And and heaven, who knows where that is, right? But um, uh, Richard has been doing a monologue for the past years about a Catholic abuse survivor, you know, which is the the dark side of institutionalized religion, you know. So I think that's, you know, we'll always attack those things. Uh, Not attack, but, you know, deal with them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone else? Um, Are you at all influenced by Firesign Theater? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fire Sign Theater. Yeah. In fact, we did a thing at the Natural Museum of Natural History. 
Yeah. We did uh, a year ago, right? We 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 shared yeah. the stage with them. And I, I used to listen to their albums <laughs> back in the album days. They had albums out, and like Herbert said, uh, Monty Python. And I just remember listening to Cheech and Chong. I had to sneak it up to my friend's room because I couldn't hear it in front of the parents. I remember it. But yeah, Farsign Theater. Yeah, Farsign sure. Theater is a, a, a I don't know how many there is. Four, four or five. Four man group. And they've mm-hmm. mainly um, comedy on record on audio. And they're very, very well known. Yes, one last question. Your Miami production, what was the reaction to it in Miami? Oh, um, Radio Radio Mambo. Culture Clash invades Miami, yeah. Well, well, I'll, yeah, tell, you, I'll tell you just a little brief history on Radio Mambo was sort of our departure from doing our Chicano-specific Latino identity politics and, you know, kind of play. And Radio Mambo was a play where we interviewed people, and we did several plays that way that they call them site-specific, where we interview people from that city, take their stories, and then we portray them on stage. And it was just went very well as much as it's, uh, you know, uh, sometimes the Cuban exiles uh, and the give you a hard time there. We we really did a great job with it and people we had Gloria Stefan and she stood on her feet, so <laughs> yeah, it was really the first time we started uh engaging with uh, Haitian Americans and African Americans and and second generation of Cuban exiles and and uh it was a real eye opener. We have a show, Culture Clash in America, that's in Houston next month. And uh, there are a lot of Miami characters in that show because they're still some of the strongest um, characters uh, to date, and that uh, Culture Clash in America is about six different cities all put together in a kind of a narrative. Form. And I think these plays de- demystify it. Like we thought Miami was just all right wingers and no liberals, you know. But yet, no, we we found well, we found, found one. An, we found <laughs> one. You know, we found an audience for the play there. It wasn't just like you know we ran out of town, but you know, they're, they're every we're everywhere. Um, Richard Montoya, Herbert Siguenza, Rick Salinas. Thank you. You've been listening to a presentation of Zocalo, an evening with Chicano performance trio Culture Clash. The Los Angeles Public Library and Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., present this lecture series. Zocalo Radio Broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Special thanks to Semper Law Group, the Los Angeles Times, the James Irvine Foundation, the California Endowment, and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles for making this program possible. For more information or to listen to past shows, please visit ZocaloLA.org. Thanks for joining us.